This is Customer Experience Leaders, a podcast produced by Rated. It's a show where we reveal the secrets of how great brands delight their customers. We can have help from systems, from brands, from design, from products. But in the end, what we remember is how people make us feel. That's the voice of Robert Saronson. He's a customer experience designer who specializes in service industries. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey. And I'm Michael Momsen. So, Michael, we've got a Dane on the show this week. Yes, and we're very good. We talked a little Dansk before we started. I hope that's not where we uh, where we kick off because uh, <laughs> I'm lost already. <laughs> so, we'll do this uh, interview in English, but Robert is a, a super experienced CX pro. He's got 10 years experience in in service industries, working on things like voice of the customer and building business cases. He's a great resource in that area. And he's worked at organizations like NBN and most recently at IAG Insurance. Today, we're going to speak to Robert about how to build a business case for customer experience. Mm, Very important. It is. And not just that, but how to rally the team around customer experience initiatives internally. So, we kick things off by jumping straight in the deep end and asking... How do you build a great business case? I think it's very important to say that you need both uh, validity and reliability when you're building a business case. So it means that, you know, you need the stories, but you also need the numbers behind. No business executive wakes up in the morning and says, hey, I want to improve customer's experience. That's not what they say. They say, I have a problem that I would like to solve. And that's when CX come into the equation. So it's always about something they want to achieve. It it can be a problem, a desire, a vision. And then it's our job as CX professionals to be that solution for for those opportunities. That's really interesting. I I'd, I'd never thought of CX innovation as being a solution to a problem. I thought it was just you know like this direction that we're all heading in. So what problem is CX solving? So for me. CX, well, maybe let's just take a step back and say, with all CX um, opportunities, there are really three things that are um, categorizing them. One of them is, what is the intent behind? Do you want to improve the customer experience of the products you have today and the services you have today? The second one is, you know, what is the business reason for using CX as the solution to this problem? Does it have to do with your people, the employee experience, the customer experience, partner experience, or your, your CX culture? And then the third one is, where is this problem, the CX problem? And what I mean by that is, is it something you've seen in the past in your survey uh, data? When you did your analytics, you found a pain problem you want to solve. Do you want to use CX to fix a problem? to increase your retention of your customers. Is it something you're seeing right now? You're seeing your competitors you know, do something in CX and you want to have the same, you want to do the same, you want to create customer loyalty? Or do you want to look to the future and see the future needs of your customers? Do you have any examples that come to mind or, or stories where you know, you've had to go through this process? I'd, I'd actually love to, like I think, academically like hearing you talk through those three points like makes so much sense but i think it you know really come to life with um any examples sure um so when i worked at nbn nbn was tasked to build infrastructure for all of australia for internet and scaling 100% every year but they were focusing on residential customers somewhere in the process they discovered that business customers have other requirements for products 
and services. So you can imagine a small company, you know, where someone digs up an internet cable, no internet for three days, web shop down, no employees can work. Not good. Other needs. So NBN quite quickly set down a task team to try and figure out what are the future needs of B2B customers. Now, it's very important to say that this is actually a commercial space. So you don't have to choose NBN as the infrastructure provider. You have choice. So that's why you need, you know, future needs and customer experience. So I was part of a task team of three people who were sat down to figure out what NBN should do. I did the research and I came up with all of the CX roadmap, the strategy, the pain points, opportunities. But really what was so interesting was it had never been done before. You're trying to figure out something that, you know, from completely scratch, that's just not there. And that was extremely interesting. And when we then talk about, you know, the intent, it's something completely new. So that's that's the intent of this example. And the business reason was to secure future revenue. So it was actually a viability reason for a segment that wasn't included in the original plans. And when we then look at, you know, you know where is the CX problem? It's in the future. It's a problem we don't have yet. But it's one we will get if we don't fix it now. And one of the things that I, I liked when we um, when we spoke you know, pre uh, the podcast was some of the examples and stories you gave, like in the insurance industry, which I think is something that's really applicable and you know something that we understand every day. You know, as a consumer of insurance, are there any that sort of come to mind where yeah you've had to frame up a customer experience initiative, yeah, like as, as a problem and 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 then sort of yeah like the, the business intent, the reason. Uh, etc. That's actually a very similar problem. So IOG also had the problem of what is the future need of B2B customers. But unlike NBN, they've had 100 years to serve businesses. They have 18 brands and they have billion dollar revenue in the category already. So it's, you know, an existing problem. Um, as I said, IOG is kind of mergers of multiple companies. So their big problem is that they're doing things different ways across the different brands and delivering different custom experience and variances, even though it's the same company. So what I did in that situation was that I tried to benchmark and figure out, you know, what is the baseline of the customer experience across all of these brands? Where are we? The main problem was all of the variation. And the second thing I, I then did was I did an internal audit with the stakeholders and trying to figure out where they felt we were, which was extremely interesting because what people perceive, what they experience and what they tell you are so different. And you would have people saying you are delivering the best experience, you know, in the industry. And you would have peers saying we're delivering the worst customer experience in, in the whole industry. So sorting out what is what, like apples and pears, is really really a, a good place to start. What I then did was, um, you know, here in Australia, we are a very limit, like a very limited region in terms of, yes, there are the players, but there's a whole world out there where a lot of other companies have had the same problems. So I hired an external consultancy to come in and bring best practices from other companies that had done something similar and tell what they have done. So we could learn from other people's experiences. And then finally, I commissioned an external audit of our customer experience. So what is it actually? You know, I did this because I didn't have time to do everything myself. Of course, there's only so many hours in the day, right? Yeah, but it's actually the work I love doing. Yeah. You know, what is it actually we are delivering? What mystery shop those experiences and figure out what they actually make people feel. But 
after I got all of that knowledge, I was able to baseline and say, this is where we are. And um, you know, you, you need this information if you want to progress in a CX project and you need to measure and baseline where you are so you can talk about the improvements, the value you've added when, once you've finished and during the process. So it's extremely important, that first step. It gives you kind of a common start point, a common understanding and a common, I guess, in, engagement for that whole group of stakeholders to gather around a problem and actually solve it. And so what did you learn from that? I learned that when you bring a lot of brands together and a lot of things, you know, there's actually quite a lot of quick wins, but they will only get you so far. Now, maybe I can give an example. I brought all of the, the, the call center managers together and we did a, a workshop where we tried to figure out what kind of problems they had in these different brands, what they had done to improve the NPS score. So what had been working for them and what problems did they have? So one of the reasons I did this was because they saw each other as competitors, even though they were the same company. So, you know, they were fighting about the same customers in the same company. So just getting them in a room was the first big step. But then sharing that they had similar problems or they had solved problems in different ways and achieved different experiences in terms of what would work with NPS was actually really great. And what that gave us was a, a catalog of 200 proven NPS improvements across the different brands and um, 20 very easy just do it. And when I say just do it improvements, it's things that have a great impact on custom NPS and is very low on complexity. So something you can do tomorrow. Your favorite kind, Michael, right? And just they, having uh, having quick, you know, a, a tactical things that make a big difference, but that actually have a uh, that actually have a measurable impact. So that's great. But you also need those quick wins because those are the ones that are gonna get people to trust in your CX strategy, your roadmap, your plan for solving the customer experience problems. That's true, actually. You almost need to get some runs on the board when you're trying to, I guess, uh, build a movement internally for this to, to say, hey, um, this is actually worth doing and it's something that we can impact. Uh, and then people will get excited about it because you can you know, start to then build uh, a bigger initiative out of that. So, that's really interesting. It's very funny because it, it, it's very similar to, you know, kind of big trends. And you're trying to lower the social risk of supporting this initiative. Not a lot of people have CX in their job descriptions. So gather around this new initiative can be risky socially for your career and everything. So you have to get those wins on the board so you can say, yeah, you know, this is a safe one to support and, and be part of and all of that. So I think it, it, it works all the way around. You mentioned call centers there, Robert. Let's dive into that a little bit. I have had a lot of, well, maybe not just me, but everyone has a lot of trouble with call centers, with insurance companies, with telcos, but mostly with, you know, big, large corporations, the brands that you've worked with in the past, trying to get a one-to-one -one interaction with somebody over the phone and get a problem solved. And the only time you really call is when you have a problem, right? So, you're already pissed off. Uh, and it's, it's very rare that a call center is able to fix that problem in a meaningful, effective and quick manner. And I know this is a big problem for these organizations, but I do want to ask you, like, why does this happen? Why are call centers so shit? Good question. It starts with people. The top one initiative on the list I just mentioned was actually people. One brand, and I'll just give an example here. One of the brands had uh, developed how you hire the right people for call center. They've sat down with a design thinker. They've developed an interview technique, you know, identified the core skills to deliver uh, 10 NPS every single time. What kind of training, what kind of uh, process to go through and implement it. And what they found was 
they had consistent 10 NPS scores from the people who went through this process. So if they got 20 random calls, they got, you know, they, they delivered 10 NPS every single time. Now, when you look at the data, you know, and here we're talking about data, you look at the people you just hired and they deliver 10 NPS every single time, no matter, you know, the difficulty of the call versus the people you already have and who have you trained with your existing and they, they, they're not delivering the same. You start wondering, is it the right people who are answering the phone? And there's not a lot of social status in sitting in a call center here in Australia. You know, when you call in insurance, it's normally, normally because something is really wrong. Something went wrong. Your house has burned down or something. So you want to talk with the person. So it's so people dependent on who you put there. And I think a lot of call centers think that they can just see it as a resource. Let's move it to the Philippines. Let's move it somewhere else. And yeah, that's fine. It's a viability reason to save cost. has nothing to do with necessarily customer experience. Now, I'm not saying that they cannot deliver good customer experience. Telstra, for instance, have a requirement for all of their vendors overseas that they have to deliver better customer experience than the onshore ones, which is, you know, otherwise you're not getting more business. So it's part of the way that they structure contracts. But if you just move call center work out to save cost, you're on the wrong track because they're there to solve a problem for your customers. That's so insightful, just that that um, line there uh, that is about people because the fact that people are calling in when it's a problem. So I, I love that. Maybe just one thing more. Yeah. When did you last call in your insurance company? This um, is a really good point, isn't it? Because what we're building up to is that these are big key moments of truth, I mean, which is a, a marketing term, but I, I really love that term because this is a moment where your brand can stand out um, it's a highly emotive moment. It's it's a it's a, it's a really 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 big moment. You're on the stage. So I'll t- I I remember it very vividly. It was a moment of truth, and it led to a really interesting uh, a really interesting outcome. So the trigger for me to call in was when I got my motor vehicle insurance renewal letter saying, "Hey, it's time to renew. Here's your new annual premium." And it was a lot higher than I was expecting. It had gone up quite a lot, uh, and. You know, not a lot had changed in in my life over the past year. I moved house, but it wasn't really a, a particularly different geographical area. And, you know, you expect things to go up, but not, you know, double or whatever it was. I did a little bit of research and had a look at some competitor quotes um, online to see where I was actually benchmarking. And I also looked up my providers. I did it like a brand new quote with my existing provider and it came out cheaper than what my renewal was. So, I'm like, oh, fuck this. Like, I'm... I'm 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 pissed because like I'm a loyal customer. I've been with you for many years and now I feel like you're just trying to extort me. So I called them and they said, look, hey, sorry, there's not really anything we can do. And I said, well, cool. This provider has it, you know, this much cheaper. And they said, sorry, we can't price match. I said, cool, goodbye and hung up and then changed provider. There's my, there's my example. I'd love to hear your opinion. There's so many things that are wrong with that experience. <laughs> so you've been a loyal customer for many years. You haven't talked with them. So you haven't had any interactions. Mm-hmm. So the, it's really latent loyalty. Mm-hmm. Then this letter shows up, increased 20%, 50%, whatever. And you have your first interaction in years. And it's not a good experience. There's no reason why. You've seen online that you can even get it cheaper with them if you just come as a new customer. Yep. You start questioning, you know, Am I a valued customer? Am I, why should I be loyal? This brand is screwing me over. And that's the problem. We don't treat loyal customers. We don't differentiate anything for a lot of our customers. 
we take no behavior as latent action. And th that's the problem. Just because a customer doesn't call you doesn't mean that they're loyal to you. They only call you when there's a problem, just like in your example. And then you better fix it. Because I felt like I was a loyal customer. I don't, I don't ring my insurance company to say, hey, you guys are doing such a great job. <laughs> um, so, I've been loyal. I pay my bills on time. And then, you know, once in three years, the only interaction I have with them is a negative one. And the result was I churned. See you later. I really felt like you articulated the situation so well in terms of the emotions that were happening on the, the caller side, so on Adam's side. I mean, we, we sort of instinctively know what would have been a great experience, which would have been high empathy, thanking them, understand you may be frustrated. Ideally, it probably should have been covered in the letter to explain why there is a premium and not in business jargon, but in really plain English, what they're getting extra for this, you know, maybe the reasons why their hands are tied because the government premiums have gone up or whatever it may be. And then when that call comes in, being like super empathetic about it and going, do you know what, I'd my hands are tied, I can't do this, but you know what, I'm going to escalate this to the special blah, blah, blah team and we're going to come back to you and like do our best, right? I, I mean, I think that's probably the best in my mind off the top of my head how that situation could have been handled. And you know what, if that was what had happened, uh, I, I would have been obviously much happier. And even if they couldn't, you know, beat the price, but, you know, if they could just get close to it uh, and actually- Yeah, shown some sort of token, yeah. Given it a crack, actually tried, then I would have probably been in a different situation. I might stay with them. Do you know what the problem here is? It's broken trust and yeah. broken relationship. Oh, damn. Like, can I just say, you're a magician in, in, in summarizing really complex situations because that's exactly what it is, broken trust. I never would have said that, but you're right. The trust is broken and we're feeling emotively very strong about it and we're feeling screwed over, like you said. I, I, I would love for you to both summarize it and also I want to hear a pro, a CX pro, explain what would have been an ideal outcome. Like if you could have architected the solution on the other side and if you had endless CX budget, so to speak, <laughs> can you both like describe accurately like you are what's going on in this situation and the ideal way that they should have addressed it? A general trend is we're seeing less and less trust with big organizations. You get a price and then suddenly you see, you know, you've been paying too much for too many years and that whole trust relationship is broken. And it's difficult to repair. Once you've, you know, a lot of customers would, would ask the company back, why didn't you contact me and say the prices have gone down? You only contact me to say when they go up. But they've gone down and then, you know, I can get a cheaper quote by just going to your homepage and doing this myself. Why are you not looking out for me? I thought we had this kind of relationship where I could trust you and, you know, I could just leave it with you and I didn't have to think about who's going to be my insurance provider. So what we're seeing in all industries is less trust. And people actually want to trust companies. They want to find providers and put more tasks to them and make them deliver and solve more problems for you. And that's what we're seeing with Apple and other big companies. They're doing more and more for you. So I think in this situation, there's actually quite a lot of tools for call center in general. So right now, there's the kind of tool where you can you can see on your screen if people are getting agitated in their voice. So you get like a feedback, instant feedback. They're really, really? pissed off now. Oh, wow. That's cool. By the words they're using, intonation and all of that. Um, you can also, if you have 
state-of-the-art systems you can see the whole history of when the letter was sent out and you know what it you know so you can see why they're calling in and you can kind of see the history they call that the uh, single customer view yes which is very difficult to do um because you're linking different systems internally but yeah sorry continue you know what just on another topic it's not the single customer view that's the problem it's the enabling the employee to make decisions in that point from all of that information well, it's, it's, it's one thing to have all these wonderful marketing campaigns and all these promises that you make in market and we're the best and we're the cheapest and like we care about our customers and like you even hear it when you're waiting on hold. Your call is important to us. We care. It's like, no, it's not. You, like, when, when the time you actually answer, you don't give a shit at all um, and you're going to lose me as a customer possibly forever over like $200. It's pretty minor. All you have to do is care. Yeah. And, and maybe just a little point on this. There's different financial value of CX improvements. So it's the, the classical, if you make it, you know, focus on what you're trying to do, you get one for one dollar back. So if you invest one dollar in improving for what you're trying to do as a customer, get one dollar back. If you focus on service and convenience, making it easier for the customer to achieve what they're trying to do, so crime, trying to create more loyalty, you get, if you put one dollar in, you get two dollars out in value. Now, if you do the same in emotion, so trying to understand your need, what your experience, what, what has happened, and, and trying to help you with the problem that you have, you're creating advocates. That's what all companies want to do. When you put $1 in, you get $3 out. Now, this is true for the financial industry here in, in Australia, and it's a proven measured fact. So that's, that's kind of the viability behind what we're talking about here, what it actually means in dollars. You mentioned something there, empowerment, um, and I just want to unpack that really quickly before we move on because it's it's pretty important. What did you mean by that? Customer experience is delivered by people. That is what I mean. We can have help from systems, from brands, from design, from products, but in the end, what we remember is how people make us feel. There's this famous quote, doesn't matter what you say, people won't remember it. What you did, people won't remember it, but it's how you made them feel. Yeah, it doesn't matter what you what you said or what you did, it's how you make people feel. Yeah. And and, and just look at your experience. You're telling me your customer experience and you're telling me how it made you feel. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's customer experience is about what people remember, what emotions they attach to an experience. And we get emotions. You know, we can get annoyed with an iPad or a program or an interface, but it's people that really either delight us or annoy us. So, Robert, welcome to the quickfire round where we ask you questions in a quickfire fashion. Michael and I are going to trade blows and you've got 10 seconds to answer. Are you ready? Yes, I am. Robert, who is your personal mentor? My personal mentor is actually my partner. Um, He works in innovation management and we have some really good discussions. What is your guilty pleasure? (sighs) Reality TV. <laughs> <laughs> any 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 shows in particular? Uh, right now, I'm listening and watching the Paul's Drag Race. I think in general, I I don't actually watch a lot of reality TV. But what's interesting to me is is people's behavior when they're put in a a stressful situation, and it, for me, it tells me a lot about humans that I use in my my work. So it's a guilty pleasure. What skill are you terrible at? Believe it or not, communication. And what's your favorite hobby outside of work? Oh, that's a very good question. Apart from watching reality TV. So my favorite hobby is actually painting. 
If you didn't have to sleep, what would you do with all the extra time? Listen to podcasts and audiobooks. <laughs> <laughs> yes. At what time in your life did you learn the most about yourself? So, I've traveled to about 40 countries in the world. Whoa. And I always find that I learn a lot about myself when I'm traveling because you see something. So, especially when I went to Japan, I saw, you know, a lot of solutions to problems that was just so different from what was my frame of reference. Um, so, when I go travel, I see people solving the same problems in different ways and that makes me learn quite a lot about myself in the way I think. Robert, as a very patriotic Australian that you are, <laughs> uh, do you enjoy Vegemite sandwiches? No. <laughs> That's a clear no. We need to rescind your citizenship, I think. Well, I can tell you on the citizenship test, they will ask you things from flag color of, you know, the Aboriginal flag to the titles of people in different states. So... And, and territories, who they are, and all kinds of stuff. But they don't make you eat a Vegemite sandwich? Nope. That should be the final test, I think. <laughs> they actually give you a native um, plant when you turn Australian. Yeah, One yeah, you can that. plant somewhere. Yeah, so just talking about that example uh, in the call center, and, you know, we obviously riffed on Adam's example and how that could have done uh, a lot better. would love to hear about any um, examples that come to mind of initiatives, you know, that you've managed, you know, and things that have gone well and, and what some of those results were that are specifically hung up on the this is a customer experience initiative. So the initiative from IAG, so the call center where we rolled out the whole hiring principles across all of the brands actually improved uh, NPS score with over 10 on the different brands, just getting all of that variations out. Now, when we talk about business plan and return on investment, it gets a little bit funny with CX. Because if I'm looking at a pain point in the past and I can see how people are churning and going away, I can calculate and say, well, let's fix that, we'll stop the churn, and this is the value you're going to get from it. But in the case of NBN, where it's a future need that we haven't designed and we don't know what it is, it's very difficult to make that business case and say, well, the return on investment is when we're going to miss 20% of our future revenue if we get it wrong. So how do we get it right? Again, it's a bit of, of the balance in terms of, of reliability and validity, because if you just look at the numbers, sometimes it's never a good idea to do something that's the right thing to do and then become viable later. I almost feel like there's two types of business cases. Like one business case is maybe a little bit easier because it's looking in the rearview mirror and that business case is easier. Like what does that look like versus one of these future pain solving business cases? And have you sort of done both and, and what the experience is there? That's such a good question. Um, I've actually done both of them. And um, the one needs a lot of calculation, the one looking in the back mirror. But you're also trying to then predict that the future will be like the past, which is a problem in general. Looking to the future, you know, it, it's it's not about making yes-no decisions. It's about looking at what lighthouses to steer towards. And what I mean by lighthouses is, yes, people want to buy online because of these reasons. Convenience, cost, choice, um, availability 24-7, whatever it is. And if they're true, then when is the right point in time to sail for those lighthouses and then execute on that strategy. I completely believe and invest in everything that you're saying, but like at a practical level, how do you actually do it? You know, is there an Excel spreadsheet and then what numbers are you putting into that Excel spreadsheet? Or um, are you just going, oh, well, we think CX is valuable. So, like, 
we should do it. That That's not going to sell the CEO and unlock budget, right? So, how do you practically sell these initiatives to the business? If we look at the problems in the past, so pain pain points that we found through our data analytics, we know how big they are. And in most these cases, even if we have one, we know that there are 10 who are not telling us. So we can kind of gauge the size of the problem. We can see the behavior. So in your case, you are churning at the insurance company. We know what cost is connected to getting a new customer to replace you. And so, you know, there's a lot, this you can put in an Excel spreadsheet and you can calculate and you can figure out which one should you go for first. And that's why I was talking about quick wins and most valuable wins, because we know we can calculate and we can, we can make two lines under and say, this is the effect of this one. This is the effect of that one. But maybe you don't want to buy insurance via a phone call tomorrow. So I can do all that I want in terms of fixing the customer experience in a call center Meanwhile, you want to buy it through an app that compares what you have with what you can get from multiple vendors. So that doesn't go into that calculation in terms of what is the cost of not getting this right. It's fixing a problem and this is what it's costing today. So we talked a lot about you know, how to sell a business case internally and how to, how to you know, build a CX initiative that actually makes an impact. But... What are some of the challenges that you have to overcome? What are some of the risks and pitfalls that you have to be wary of? Because I assume that there are many and I, I just want to kind of see from your perspective, where have, where have businesses made mistakes in the past? So, I think there's four, four experiences that I can share. One is not getting quick wins quick enough so people don't support your initiative. Because CX is, is you know, you're actually relying on a lot of different employees, people who don't necessarily deal with customers. So you have to make it a success and make them part of that success. So those quick wins to lower the stakeholders, you know, risk of not supporting your initiative and not spending time on CX. So creating momentum, basically, that's the first one. I think the second one is, you know, people see CX as something very fluffy, but getting a CX strategy down on paper, writing the roadmap, trying to write down what you're trying to achieve will actually make it very visible for people what it actually is. Not just saying we're trying to make the customer feel nice or doing stuff. You know, trying to make it relevant in terms of strategy, which it really is, and 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 put it into the same kinds of format that your business is using. So what's the pitfall there? The, the pitfall is not, you know, not making it look professional enough, not making the right plans, not making the roadmap, not doing the strategy, not telling people how it fits in achieving, you know, the commercial goals of your company. Exactly. And I'm sure it's part of that is like comms, you know, and, and uh, you know, how you do communicate this where everyone's getting excited about that strategy because I'm sure you could probably write the most brilliant strategy doc which has all the salient points which covers like the future elements but if you can't get people fucking excited about it, <laughs> if you can't get the executive team um, bought in, then, you know, will that ever come to life? Yeah. And I, I think an old saying holds true. Good CX has many fathers. Bad CX has is an orphan. Absolutely. All right. So what's pitfall number three? So pitfall number three is, you know, enabling people to succeed, your colleagues to succeed making it a safe environment to 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 try different things um giving them the right tool to succeed supporting them um facilitate the solutions you actually want a lot of people just give you stuff and leave and say oh yeah fix it now there's many different handover points in cx and some people like to do the thinking of all of the strategy and the plans but then 
you know, the value of strategy is the paper it's written on. It's the implementation that actually delivers the result. So you have to follow it to the door or enable the people who do it to succeed. Yep. And the fourth one is share the glory. I love it already. (laughs) (laughs) What that means is, as I said, CX success has so many fathers. Everyone wants to be part of the success. And uh, the interesting thing about CX, it's not like dollars. If you have $1 and you tear it in two, you have two half dollars. So CX value, I can cut in half and I still have the whole CX value and you have the whole CX value. So share it. Share the success. Everyone wants to be part of a CX success story. Could you tell us an example of a CX initiative that has failed because of one of those and then maybe what the management team could have done differently to ensure that it succeeded? Yes, I can. I have a very good example for this one. Um, So it's a competitor of IAG. So I've been doing a lot of different kind of research for IAG. This was um, in the context is I was out talking with customers about fire insurance um, because a competitor had launched an app for lodgement of claims. So I talk with the customer. We talk about, you know, if the unlikely event happens that your house burned down, what would you expect? You know, what would good experience be and all of these things? Then I show them the competitor's app and say, I'll have a look at this, play around, and the customer does that. And then I ask, so what do you think? And the customer look at me and say, this is crazy. If my house is burning down, do they think I will grab my phone, run out of my burning house, find Wi-Fi to download this app, sit in the park for 40 minutes, fill out the questions without any human contact? Who came up with this stupid idea? (laughs) (laughs) And... You know, what this shows to me is, it's, you know, what we talked about before, it's all about people. But what, what is even more frightening is that someone in this company let this go to market. Now, I know, I know the horrible stories that everyone wants an app. We all know that. But this has gone to market. Someone thought that this was a good idea. No one asked the customer. I, well, I asked several of our customers, but no, none of them wanted it. But imagine this. This, this whole idea that in the most vulnerable time in your life, your house has just burned down, you want to talk with a person who understands you and say it's going to be okay, being reduced to you have to download an app and fill in 40 questions in 40 minutes. I know that you asked the questions of, of um, customers, you know, would you use this? How could your competitor have avoided spending all that money building the app for starters, but also wasting a whole bunch of time and producing something that is actually probably giving a negative impact than a positive one how could they have avoided that whole thing so now we're entering into my favorite topic which is design thinking and design thinking really is you know it's three different parts it's people technology and financials and in design thinking terms we call them desirability feasibility and viability yeah so maybe the way to think about it is that the people pit matches up to the desirability and the feasibility is the technology. Can we even do it? And then the finance pieces, is it even viable? Correct. Exactly. So the, the thing is about design thinking is you want a balance. Previously, we've had, you know, can we make it and, and is it worth making? That's the old way of thinking. But the third thing that's come into, you know, the scene with design thinking in, in the early 2000s was do people actually need it and do they, you know, do they desire it? Putting that into the mix, into how you make balanced business decisions and increase the success rate of your initiatives, that is the core of design thinking. So 
If we go back to the example of the insurance app, someone thought it would be a really good idea to deliver this app. They dreamt it and they scaled it up and you know delivered it to market. So it went all the way up in certainty. Someone produced this, you know, had tunnel vision, said, this is a great idea, I want an app. The viability people say, oh yeah, this is a great idea. We can save the call center people and people will do all of this online and do the admin themselves. It's great. We're going to save money. Perfect. Love it. Implement it. But as we discovered, no one asked the customer. No customer ever said, oh, I want to, you know, find Wi-Fi and download this app that I didn't know I needed because I cannot talk with a person now. They were not shown this. They haven't definitely not used it. And no one would ever advocate for this solution. So the whole certainty of this desirability need is not there. It was never tested. It was never proven. But the product and service was delivered to market. And that is the definition of not design thinking. It's making not balanced decisions with humans. And Robert, how would you grade each one? Because I think there's probably many ideas or initiatives that could pass the test of each one of those three, do you score each one out of 10? Do you give uh, cash value to the feasibility versus the viability and then come up with some sort of, I don't know, desirability score based on what you think NPS will increase by or what lifetime value will increase by? Like, How do you actually put some metrics behind these three? So one way of looking at it, let's say you have a requirement, then you can you can estimate the impact on the desirability, the feasibility and the viability. So, you know, is it solving a customer problem? Can we actually do it? You know, is it a good financial idea to do it? And you can get, you know, expert within your company to to make those assessments and they're better than none. You know, having experts make these decisions. I normally do the, the desirability ones because I've done the research and investigated what customers want. So, you know, let's say I had this initiative, develop an app for reporting uh, my house burning down. Desirability, I would probably score it no, zero. And you would see the two other guys giving it, you know, high high score because it gives them everything they want from, um, you know, functional innovation and process innovation all the things they want. But it doesn't give, it actually goes backwards on emotional innovation. It takes me from talking to a person, getting an experience to getting no experience. So it's actually minus. We talked about businesses being run by spreadsheets and customer satisfaction doesn't pay the bills. And so, you know, the viability and the feasibility are kind of sort of encapsulated in that the the spreadsheet. Is it financially a good idea? And is it an innovation that we can actually do from a technical perspective? But the part that I think we often see missed and that is probably the root of a lot of problems with a lot of businesses is the desirability. Does the customer give a shit uh, or does it actually address a problem that they have and no one talks to them? No, and that's because we have so many biases in the way we see people. We think people are like us and that's why so many organizations get it wrong. If you ha- And that's why we, we're talking about, you know, diversion and inclusion in teams. It's because you can put a whole group of men in suits in a room and they they can try and imagine what you know a busy housewife wants in terms of a product and they'll never come up with it because their reference mind is what they want so a lot of this customer experience need is people just cross over and say yeah 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 people want this app because we want it so robert uh fascinating discussion and a lot of thought-provoking nuggets that um, I think are going to take quite a while for us to digest. So, thank you for coming on the show and sharing your wisdom. All right. 
All right, what an amazing episode. Robert uh, really delivered the goods. This is our debrief section where we sum up the key takeaways from the episode. Yeah, no, I mean, I absolutely loved it. I mean, Robert really shone in his experience as a customer experience pro. I think that was really, really great to see him articulate situations that we knew instinctively you know, wasn't working, for example, your experience with the call center. But the way that he sort of unpacked that was uh, was brilliant. He, he kind of summed it up in one line what I was feeling over, <laughs> you know, there's all these mixed crazy emotions. Right, broken trust. I'm like, fuck, ah, yes, it is broken trust. That's what it is. Yeah. All right, let's, um, let's, un- let's unpack this. All right, so I think a nice way to sum up that entire interview is with the four pitfalls that Robert talked about. Yeah, no, I agree. That's good. So, the four pitfalls to avoid. The first one is not getting quick wins when implementing CX. Mm. I thought this was really interesting because, you know, Robert made a really great point that you need to almost get some runs on the board when you're developing a program to build momentum with the team. And he said something that I found really interesting. He said it lowers the social risk for stakeholders to get involved and support the initiative. So, if they can see some success in the early stages of a project, then it's really easy for them to jump on board and get involved with the bigger projects. No, that's great. And by the way, um, I didn't mention it in the episode, but one way to sort of quickly figure out whether this is a quick win or not. One of the things that we use in startup land is something called ICE, where you measure the impact that you think that the initiative will have, how confident you are, and how easy is it to implement. And so, if you score each one of those out of 10, so, oh, shit, if we do this, there'll be a high impact for the customer, 10 out of 10. How confident am I? Oh, I don't know, 50, 50, 5. Uh, how easy is it? Oh, actually, it's really hard. You've got to re-architect you know, our back end. Okay, 1 out of 10. Yep. <laughs> and then, as soon as those three scores get a really high uh, total score, then you know that that's you're on the path for a quick win. The second one was uh, having your CX strategy down on paper to make sure that it's not just this fluffy, intangible thing and that it's also not these emotive one-off projects but that you're working towards something and you kind of have this rally cry that everyone can get behind to say you know this is our vision for how we want to be great at customer experience and so I thought that was really good. So the third pitfall to avoid was you know make sure that you enable people to be able to actually deliver on the strategy give people the right tools the right support that includes enabling people to fail you know um, and, and to test things and to try them. Robert talked a lot about handover points as well in the interview and and how, you know, with a customer experience initiative, there are a lot of handover points. So, making sure that you've kind of thought it through and that the people who are involved are actually on board and empowered to deliver what they're setting out to do. And then the final one was one that I hadn't really thought of too much. Certainly, as it relates to customer experience, I sort of put this more around like managing people. But it's actually a really good point, which was share the glory. And I loved his analogy of like, you can tear up a dollar and you can just keep tearing that and everyone can enjoy that success. And I think that was a really nice way to think about it because these quick wins are going to deliver some great results and making everyone feel great about that, you know, then helps the overall organization and everyone in the team to get buy-in to those future customer experience initiatives. So, let's sum the takeaways up. What to do to avoid the pitfalls of CX. Firstly, make sure you get quick wins and team buy-in. The second one was uh, putting your customer experience strategy on paper. The third was enable the team. And finally, sharing that glory for the quick wins. Well, thanks for joining. If you have any guest suggestions, we would love to hear from you. You can reach Michael or myself on LinkedIn. I'm Adam Jaffrey. And I'm Michael Momsen, M-O-M-S-E-N. And we look forward to hearing from you. So, uh, that's a wrap. Thanks very much, Adam. Thanks for listening. Speak to you next time. 
Thanks for listening. Customer Experience Leaders is a co-production of Rate It, the market leader in on-the-spot customer feedback, and Wavelength, a full-service podcast agency for brands. This episode was produced by Christopher Lawson and Adam Jaffrey. Hey, wait, that's me. It was also edited and mixed by Christopher Lawson. Our theme music is by Icolix, Peter Cooley and The Shrugs. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love to hear from you. Please connect with Michael or myself on LinkedIn. Send us your guest suggestions, your episode ideas or just your general feedback. And finally, the team at Rated would love to help you to get more feedback for your business. Whether that's in a retail store or online, they've got a range of solutions that gather customer feedback in a really interesting way. No annoying surveys, no 200 questions. is really amazing. You can have a chat with the team by visiting rateitapp.com. That's R-A-T-E-I-T-A-P-P.com. I'm Adam Jaffrey. Thank you for listening. We produce this show every fortnight, so we'll speak to you in two weeks. Hold up. 